Hey, good morning. If you're jumping in late, welcome to Christ Church Charlestown. My name is J.D. Mangrum. I get to be the, the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown. It's an honor to, to have you here today in the middle of summer 2020. Today we're starting a new message series called Who is My Neighbor? How many of you, if you were here over the last few weeks, enjoyed the Hidden Figure series? Uh, if, if you were part of that, you know, there were five pastors from three different church plants in the cities, uh, Boston. How many of you had a particular moment or a particular message where God really used the pastor to say something powerful to you? What was your kind of favorite moment in the series? Uh, and it's okay, you don't have to say me, I'm a, I'm a big boy. Uh, for me personally, my favorite moment was actually last week when Pastor Jua said, there are gonna be moments in your life where God's voice is gonna go silent. And in those moments, you need to be listening in to what God has to say to you through people that you trust God is speaking to. That that really connected for me and was one of the most powerful moments in the whole series. Even in the comments section right now, maybe you'll say, I loved Pastor Brian's message, or I love when Pastor Josh said this, or when David Butler said that. Beginning this new series, I just want to say, if I've learned anything from living in Boston, living in Charlestown over the few years, it's that in the summer, uh, this neighborhood can become a bit of a ghost town. People are on vacation or People go to their second homes in other parts of New England, or maybe people are just inside, like hiding from the heat, sitting in front of their window units or sitting under their central air. So in, in praying about this series, uh, I felt like God was leading us to do a series that's not aimed at trying to get a bunch of visitors to be at church or convince a bunch of unconvinced people about following Jesus, but God really wants uh, to speak to those of us who are part of Christ Church Charlestown, who are followers of Christ already. And I felt like we were supposed to talk about being a good neighbor in pandemic. We're what, like five and a half or five months into COVID-19 life. And in this time of uncertainty and unrest, how are we as God's people supposed to be good neighbors? I thought about how I felt like God wanted us to do a series where we kind of just go verse by verse through a portion of the Bible and talk. And, and frankly, honestly, this year I've thought a lot about Mr. Rogers. I was one of those kids, I don't know about you, but I grew up watching Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers in the afternoon. Which, which shows did you grow up watching after school? Those were the ones I watched after preschool or at the end of the day of uh, preschool. Mr. Rogers, so gentle, so kind all the time, singing, won't you be my neighbor? And in this year where people are kind of locked down and often angry in an election cycle or people are upset about pandemic or just social unrest, all the things that are going on, I thought about Mr. Rogers' uh, kindness and his simplicity and his humility singing that simple line, won't you be my neighbor? I've wondered often if he were still alive, what he would be thinking, what Fred Rogers, the ordained Presbyterian minister, would be thinking of this kind of cultural moment. Who is my neighbor? The series over the next four weeks, we're going to do three very specific things. Each Sunday at 10 o'clock on Facebook Live, we're going to work through the parable of the Good Samaritan, kind of verse by verse. Every Tuesday evening, we're going to be uh, debriefing and talking about a video series called The Art of Neighboring that's in Right Now Media. If you have access to Right Now Media and want to be part of the Zoom-based small group, 
A, let me know you want to be part of the group on your connection card at the end of the day. And then B, go ahead and watch video one in the art of neighboring. And right now, if you don't have right now media, but would like to be part of the group or just want the right now media, it's like the Netflix of discipleship. Just let us know right in the comments or send us a, a private message and let you know you want to be a part of it. But for about an hour and 15 minutes on Tuesday nights, we'll talk through the art of neighboring, what it looks like to love our neighbor. And then Finally, this week, most of you probably got a, a little package in the mail from me uh, with a note encouraging you to do something. And then with a little notebook, I asked you, would you just begin to write down the names of as many friends and neighbors as you know? If you live in Charlestown, and, and most of you do, list as many people in Charlestown or people connected with our church that you know. If you don't live in Charlestown, but got one because you live in greater Boston, I want you to list people you know in Charlestown people you know in our church, and then people in your family or neighborhood or community that you know. And at the end of the four weeks, I want us to just see collectively how many neighbors we know. Now, I told you in the note, and I'll tell you again, we're not doing this to juke you at the end and say, now you have to ask if they're going to heaven or hell, or now you have to invite them to Thanksgiving dinner. I just want you to make a list of who all you know, just a list. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the term Good Samaritan, we tend to think, huh, that's nice, a Good Samaritan. In our culture, uh, this is because of this very story, Jesus telling this story, a Samaritan's become someone who does something nice for someone in need. A Samaritan might be someone who lends some money or helps an elderly person across the street or helps a stranger out with a flat tire. I became friends with Jason Ritchie because he changed Natalie's tire one day outside of Starbucks when she was stranded with a flat. Might be someone who rescues a kitten from a tree or helps a child escape from a burning building or whatever the case may be. In America, we even have Good Samaritan type ministries. There's Samaritan's Purse, Good Samaritan Ministries, and others. And we have even these things called Good Samaritan's Law, where if a person is injured or in danger, Good Samaritans can safely offer their protection and assistance and cannot be fined or sued or arrested for their actions as long as the rescuer believes they're helping the victim and the victim doesn't object to the help. Good Samaritans are heroes to us, thanks to Jesus telling of a story about being a neighbor. Hadn't always been that way, I promise you. You see, in Jesus' day, Samaritans were a race, or they were like a group of people, like an ethnic group, and they were not considered good people to the average devout Jew. Remember last week when Pastor Jua, if you can remember his message, he talked about this guy Rehoboam. Rehoboam caused the split of the nation of Israel into two separate kingdoms. And he said Rehoboam ruled the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And a guy, um, and, and over the years, by the way, Judah would have good kings and bad kings, and they sort of lived longer as a nation. Those northern tribes, sort of led by Jeroboam, became the nation of Israel and they only had evil or spiritually lukewarm kings. And because of their sin, eventually in 721, a nation, the nation of Assyria, would kind of come in and ransack and destroy the, the northern kingdom. And they would carry all the royalty and good people of that kingdom off into captivity and scatter them throughout the Assyrian Empire. 
And then they would take Assyrian citizens or citizens of other conquered lands and bring them into that area that was the northern tribe. And what would happen was these sort of the remnant of people from the nation of the northern kingdoms and then these new pagan other people would come in and they began to make families together and have babies and begin to develop their own sort of culture. So good Jews from Judah began to see these this new group of people, these Samaritans from the land of Samaria, as a racially, religiously, culturally sort of sort of Jewish, sort of Assyrian, but totally compromised group of people. You see, the Samaritans believed a lot of things a little bit, but didn't really believe God an awful lot. They had their own temple. That was a no-no. They had their own scriptures. That was a no-no. They had their own sort of cultural, religious practices and holy places. That was a no-no according to God's word. And consequently, consequently, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They didn't want anything to do with them. They saw the Samaritans as the children of backslidden Jews who started families with pagan Assyrians, religiously compromised, watered down frauds. And so the people listening to this parable would have been the religious people of the day, and they would have been so mad when they heard about the Samaritan kind of coming into the story. They would have literally thought, now here's the guy who's going to kick a man when he's down. He's going to go ahead and kill him and finish this guy off. They would have been furious. They would have never imagined a Samaritan could be the hero of the story, the one who would actually show mercy. If, if we were modernizing this parable today, we would rename it. We would tell it as the parable of the good Ku Klux Klan member, the parable of the good Antifa organizer, the parable of the good homophobe, the parable of the good militant trans activist, the parable of the good terrorist, the parable of the good closed-minded fundamentalist, or most simply, the parable of the good neighbor with the offensive yard sign. Because we've all seen an offensive yard sign or window sign that made us a little uncomfortable, even made us kind of break out in hives. Keep that in mind. And into that setting, we read the Good Samaritan and we ask, who is my neighbor? Now, let's just do the setting of the story today. If you got a Bible, turn to Luke 10, and we'll just read and talk about the setting. It's fairly early still in Jesus's ministry, and he's been spending a lot of his time in the region of Palestine called the Galilee. Now, um, the Galilee was the northern kind of part of the nation of Israel, and this is where Jesus grew up. It's where he's doing a lot of his teaching and healing and ministry early on. Soon he's going to head to another area in the south, uh, the area of Judea, where Jerusalem is, where he would later be arrested, crucified for and for our sins, and killed, and then three days later he would rise again. His whole ministry is this intentional, very purposeful march toward Jerusalem and toward crucifixion to die for you and I and all of humanity. Can you guess what lies between the area of the Galilee and Judea? Samaria. To get from the Galilee, where Jesus is preaching and teaching, to Judea, one would have to go through or, for a good Jew, often around Samaria. 
And so this is the setting. Jesus is talking with a Jewish legal scholar, a Jewish biblical scholar, and he's telling this story about a Samaritan. He's kind of implicitly saying, you know what? I'm dying for Jews, and I'm dying for non-Jewish Gentiles, and I'm dying for half-Jewish Samaritans, and I'm dying for everyone. And if you're following me, it's going to lead us into the actual and the metaphorical land of the Samaritans. Jesus today would say, if you're following me, it's going to lead to the actual and metaphorical land of the people with the uncomfortable yard signs. Same is true today. If you're following Jesus, it's going to lead you into tough and sometimes offensive and uncomfortable places. So let's read the setting of the story, what happens to provoke this story, beginning in Luke 10, uh, verse 25. And I'm just going to read from my iPad, if that's okay. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You answer him correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, Beginning this story, this parable of the Good Samaritan, he said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. Now let's just stop there. When you hear the lawyer, don't don't think American lawyers, especially don't think the 1-800 numbers with the really weird jingles that you hear on television. Think more like seminary scholar. This guy's an expert in Jewish law, an expert in the first five books of the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, often called the Torah, sometimes called the Pentateuch, as Pastor Josh said a few weeks ago, and you guys heard him talk about that. When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's referring to the laws, the first five books of the Bible. The prophets is the prophetic teachers like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then the smaller books, the prophets. He's speaking uh, in the when he says the law of those first five books of the Bible. So a lawyer is a Jewish or biblical legal scholar who determined what the Bible was saying, the first five books of the Old Testament were saying, and how it ought to be applied in daily life. Now he stands up and he's asking Jesus a question. It's a good question, but he's not being honest. Even Luke knows this. He said he stood up to test Jesus, sort of kind of try to catch Jesus in an intellectual trap so that Jesus looks like a buffoon and the lawyer looks like the hero of the day. And so Jesus knows his heart. He asks this question and Jesus responds then with a question, says, how do you, how do you, you're asking me, how do you read the law? Now, the lawyer would have loved this because he was so full of himself. He would have loved that Jesus was asking him his thoughts. Often replying with a question, to a question with a question will give uh, clarity to someone's intent. Jesus is exposing this guy's intention. So the guy answers, with the most basic Jewish scripture, the one that every Jewish kid raised by good Jewish parents for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years would have memorized. It's called the Shema. The Shema comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Can I go ahead and read that to you really quickly? It says this, the Shema, which Shema is uh, Jewish Hebrew for hear, listen, the first words in these verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
You should talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a you shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they will be like frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Every kid memorized these verses. It was so important. It was the education. The Shema was the ABCs of Jewish life. It was so important that you started every day as a family talking about God and the Shema. Uh, you did it at home. You did it out while you were walking. You talked about the Shema. You did it before bed at night. You did it over your cereal in the morning. You talked about the Shema. Really committed like ninja God followers would even create these little bracelets with little boxes and these headbands with these little boxes and in the boxes they would put these tiny little scrolls called phylacteries and the phylactery would even have a little scroll with the Shema written on it. Jewish people you see didn't believe in tattoos. This was their equivalent of tattooing it on your wrist and your forehead so you would constantly remember to love God with everything that you had. They would even put it on the doorposts of their home and on the doorpost of the city gates where all the politics and all the business took place. The cornerstone of Jewish society was the Shema. So the lawyer aptly, correctly, sums up the law, the way to get eternal life by quoting the Shema. Love God with all you have, love God with all you are. Now, these aren't four different ways to love God. Like, I can love God with my mind, but uh, not with my might. Or I can love God with my soul, but I don't have to love God with my emotions. For the Jewish person, it was all one thing. Love God with an undivided whole being. Then the lawyer actually adds a quick sort of second command, also biblical from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor like you love yourself. This one is sort of the out flow of loving God. And the lawyer got it. He treated them as one. The way to eternal life is to love God with everything and love your neighbor like you love yourself. One command, two applications. One command, maybe three applications. Love God, love neighbor, love self. See, God wants us, his people, to live a life of love. Love God with everything. Love neighbor with everything. Love self with everything in that order, in that order, that's important. So Jesus answers, good answer. And then he says this, and this is powerful. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Or do this, lawyer, and you will have eternal life. But the verbs actually say this. The verbs actually say, hey, my man, uh, good job, good answer. Do that perfectly. Love God with everything and love neighbor with everything as you love yourself with everything. Do that perfectly, and then do it perfectly some more, and perfectly some more, and never mess up, and perfectly, and perfectly, and perfectly, and perfectly do these things, and then you will get eternal life. Let's take a quick time out. Let me ask a question. How many of you loved God perfectly with your whole being all week long? Even further, in addition to that, how many of you perfectly loved your neighbor all week long with your whole being? And if you got those two perfect, how many of you loved yourself perfectly all week long with your whole being, with no self-loathing? I'll be honest, I didn't love God, neighbor, and self perfectly for not, not even five seconds this week did I get 
that right. I just didn't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. None of us can do it. And God knows it's it's really hard to do anything perfectly, especially love, especially God, especially people. So Jesus is showing this guy that we all fall short. All of us do. We read this and we think, I don't love God with everything and I don't love neighbor with everything. None of us gets this right. We've all failed at points in the past over and over. So left to ourselves in our own effort to gain eternal life by our love, we're in deep trouble, unable to save ourselves. Perfectly loving God, neighbor, and self is like having a competition to swim the Atlantic Ocean from Charlestown. We get down right down here in the harbor and try to swim to Ireland uh, with no help at all, no spot to rest along the way. Some of us would barely make it over to East Boston. Some might make it out to the harbor islands. I don't know. Some of you might even make it out into the outer harbor, past those islands, past the Boston light. Not one of us is swimming the 2,900-ish miles from Boston to Western Ireland unaided. And the best swimmer among us would have no room to boast because you might swim a mile and I might just swim a few yards, but nobody's close to 2,900 miles required to make that trip. It's impossible without a bailout. So at this point, the lawyer knew the law well enough to know that he would need a bailout. He should be saying, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? I can't do this. What am I supposed to do with this? And But he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. What he actually does is he, said, he begins to pivot and ask a different question. He wants to talk about something different. See, for him and for us, the law of God, the Old Testament, the Bible, should expose our sinfulness and our helplessness. But sadly for him and often for us, it doesn't. Instead of asking for mercy, so often we try harder. We try to find another way around to earn God's approval. We think we can do it alone. Jesus has to shake his head and say, look, dude, I will help you. Bro, I will help you. Just ask me for help. Instead, this guy tries to justify himself and he asks the second question, who is my neighbor? And asking who is his neighbor, the lawyer is showing the gap between he and Jesus, between he and God, between following the letter of the law and following God's heart, where we get the spirit of the law, the literal Holy Spirit of the law, the spirit of the Bible. God knows we can't follow the letter of the law and instead he wants to offer us the spirit of the law. He wants to give us his spirit when we offer, when we accept his gracious offer of forgiveness and relationship with him accomplished by Jesus at the cross in the empty tomb. You see, the lawyer saw God as the God of the law, but Jesus sees God as the God for all people, the God of grace existing in Trinity. He sees the Father as the God of grace. The lawyer saw God as just the God of Israel. Jesus is presenting God as God for everyone, the only God who loved the world so much that John 3.16 says he sent his one and only son to die, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have eternal life. The lawyer saw God as this God of tight borders, not even extending into Samaria. Jesus sees God as the God of open arms. The lawyer was asking, who is my neighbor? Jesus was asking, who's God for? The answer is everyone. The lawyer was asking, who's my neighbor? Jesus was asking, 
what do you need to do or be to become a good neighbor? The lawyer saw his neighbor as Jews, not half-Jewish Samaritans, not non-Jewish Gentiles, not just any Jews, but probably Jewish men, not women. He would have seen his neighbor as Jewish adults, not kids. He would have seen his neighbor as um, holy Jewish people, not questionable people, not sinful people. Um, his neighbor would have been decent, upstanding Jewish people, not people with debts or handicaps or disabilities or liabilities. Um, Jesus saw his neighbor as all humans. If you had a pulse, you qualified to be Jesus's neighbor and someone worthy of love, someone made in the image of God. The lawyer and Jesus Two different worldviews, two different ways of looking at God and self and the world. Totally different pages, totally different readings of scripture, totally different worldviews, totally different ways, therefore, of living and believing. Can I tell you something? Honestly, for me, I don't know how it is for you. For me, sometimes it feels like when the lawyer and Jesus are both living in me, struggling and wrestling for control. Elizabeth Elliot has written, the only basis for peace is the cessation of the conflict of two wills, my will versus God's. Discipleship is my will flying the white flag of surrender and allowing God's will to affect every area of my life, including who and how I will love. Listen, people are complex. <laughs> if I've learned anything, it's that we human beings are very complex uh, creations. Love is not. Love's not complex. For Jesus, therefore, neighbor wasn't complex either. We don't need Bible classes on how to love, not how to love God, not how to love others, not how to love self. We're called to love. Don't make it complicated. Billy Graham has been attributed with saying, it's God's job to judge, Spirit's job to convict. It's my job to love. I love that statement. Let God do his part. You and I, let's do ours. Now, before we hammer that out really quickly, I want you to hear from my wife, Natalie. I appreciate my wife's wisdom and willingness to share her heart and talk about some of our actual neighbors we've had over the years, as well as how we've loved them. Listen, my wife, of all the human beings God's made, she is the best, I think, at loving people genuinely right where they are, very authentically, with actions and words and emotions. So here's a part of a conversation she and I had this week talking about our neighbors. Some of our first neighbors were Eddie and Misty, and they ended up being their lifelong friends. Like, we still keep in contact with them, and we had babies at the same time, and she cut my hair, and they were really just good neighbors. Yeah, when we moved to Greenville and lived in an apartment for the first time for me, John and Jesse, um, just such an unexpected neighbor, I think. Elm Street was like a totally different set of neighbors. Um, a lot older neighborhood, so we were definitely the young family on our block. And those were some interesting neighbors, but some of the best neighbors at the same time. A lot of wisdom there, a lot of memories, some good, some bad. And then moving to Boston, neighbors means something totally different here just because you're literally sharing a home, sharing a space. So we've had great neighbors living in Boston, Seth and Lisa, and then Kathy, 
sharing, you know, we all shared a washer and dryer. That was probably my, we were probably not good neighbors in that sense because I never could remember to empty the washer and dryer. But, um, great neighbors. And then now our neighbors literally in our house, Carrie right beside us, and then Mike and Taylor and their baby below us. We've been blessed with, like, really good neighbors and good, some of them lifelong friends. Yeah, so on Elm Street, the duplex across the street was Steve and Teresa, and then Chuck and Daisy. And Chuck and Daisy, well, none of them had air conditioning, so they were always outside, which really makes for good conversations with neighbors because they're always out there. And I was out there with the boys, and so we would um, talk all the time and check in on them because they were older. And then Steve and Teresa were like great neighbors because they always invited us over. Me and Teresa would wake up at 5.30 in the morning and take walks um, downtown. And it was just, it was an interesting, it was fun because it was like, you can come to my house anytime, I can go to your house anytime. Constantly like a back and forth. So those were good neighbors. We would, so we usually bake cookies or bake something to take to a neighbor. And I remember Chuck and Daisy, it's usually him, he was home and so then he would eat them all before Miss Daisy could have any. Um, or we babysat kids. We helped a lot of people move, which that's the sad part of being a neighbor. Um, so being a neighbor has looked like a lot of different things over the years. So some of our favorite neighbors are John and Jesse, who we met in Greenville. And I just had Noah. I remember he was tiny. And we baked, they moved in the apartment next door. And so we baked them cookies, and JD had on a old youth group t-shirt from forever ago. And because we baked cookies, it struck a conversation. John noticed the shirt, and so he asked if we knew of a church. And we were like, well, actually, yeah, we meet next door at our apartment. And so they came and became believers and were some of the first people to be baptized in our church. And um, they've been supporters of us all along our journey and even still support Christ Church Charleston. Yeah, yeah, neighboring in Boston does look different just because there's so many people I can't know all of my literal neighbors. But I feel like God, whatever He's made me to enjoy, gave the gifts He's given me, or the season of life we're in, we've met neighbors through sports, through baseball with the boys, or the Harvard Kent because of their school, or Anna's because I go to Anna's almost every day and I see those same people every day my work um, so you can't just love your neighbor just your neighbor like you have to be intentional you actually have to love them you have to show them in some way you have to reach out if we all pursued our neighbors for a month intentionally think of all the new neighbors we would know we would our reach would be even more because like, we're a small church, but if we all really put forth that effort, it goes, your reach goes so much further when we work together in that sense. What should we do with this passage? Let me give you a couple thoughts really quickly. Loving God perfectly, loving neighbor perfectly, all the humans, is impossible. Yet God is perfect, and God is perfectly loving. So if we fail once, we failed enough to separate ourselves from Him, and 
even if we could do it perfectly, like I'm going to love God, love neighbor, love self perfectly this week going forward, we failed in the past enough to separate ourselves from God. Can't be done. We need mercy. Thankfully, God offers us mercy in Jesus. Not yet Christian. Uh, Jesus' forgiveness and mercy are our only hope for this life and our only hope for all of humanity. The lawyer asked, by doing what shall I inherit eternal life? The answer is by trusting Christ alone. Christian, Christ follower, maybe crumbling under the weight of condemnation and religious self-loathing, your religious guilt as many of you call it. Once you have trusted Christ, you are loved perfectly, forgiven completely, never to be disinherited or abandoned. Second, the command to love neighbor is a command to love one, our actual neighbors. We are commanded to love our actual neighbors like Natalie shared. It's the crux of why I want you to make a list of everyone you know. The command to love neighbor is also a command to love all the humans, everyone in need of God's love and in need of love from people. And then three, the command to love neighbor is not just a command to love us as we see the lawyer trying to kind of narrow it down. But it's a command to love different people intentionally. Remember, this is the parable of the good clue. Ku Klux Klan member, the good homophobe, or the good terrorist, or the good militant activist. Author Sarah Miles has written, there's no way to be a Christian at home by yourself. We'll get into that idea in a couple of weeks, but for today, just know that the command to love neighbor isn't just an idea or a feeling, it's a command to action uh, requiring movement toward other people in love because of God. Third, the question, who's my neighbor, can actually be rephrased to ask, who is God for? Who is God for? After all, we, we know who God is. If we know who he is, then we can determine who we are for. If we know who we are in Christ, we will know who we are for. Let me ask us, who are we for? Who is Christ Church Charlestown for? So often, churches are frankly known by who or what they're against. We as a church want to be known by how we spend our time, how we spend our resources, how we spend our relationships. We want to be known as a church by who we are for. And we want to be for all kinds of people, especially people that most people think the church is against. So finish the sentence. You might even type it in the comments really quickly, or you might... Um, if you're watching this on YouTube or watching it later, you might even hit pause and just talk about this. Finish this sentence. Most people believe the church is against blank. Or finish this sentence. Most people would assume Christ Church Charlestown is against blank. Whoever you filled in the blank with, that's exactly who our church is actually supposed to be clearly for. Because I promise you, Jesus is for her, Jesus is for him, or Jesus is for them. And while I'm out at it, let me just drill down just a little harder. But how you spend your time, your money, your relationships, who does your life say that you are for? Number four, side note, we can assume this lawyer was not a true believer because he's trying to put limits on who God is going to give love to and because he's really trying to test Jesus and justify himself. Here's the thing. When we realize the ocean love of God poured into the thimble-sized hearts of us, then we are free to give love generously 
and liberally. When we realize the ocean of love poured into us by God, then we are free with our thimble-sized hearts to love others generously and liberally. 1 John 4 tells us we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. (laughs) For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment, 1 John 4, 21, says this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother or sister. The people who are best at love are ought to be the best at love are the people who've looked intently into the cross, stared into the loving eyes of Jesus, looked at the train spikes driven through his wrists and feet and seen the price that he paid in love for relationship and they understood God's love. The best lovers have received that love given by grace, really been loved by God, and then freely love others because they have been freely loved. We begin to put limits on who we will love, asking who our neighbor is in order to limit it. We show that maybe we don't understand the love that we've already received in Christ. And finally today, one command, two applications. One command two or maybe three applications. Love God, love neighbor, love self. But know this, the only way to know uh, to love your neighbor and yourself as God intends is to love him first and best. Christian, if you love your neighbor first and God second, you're a people pleaser and you're an idolater, the Bible would say, one who idolizes people. And listen, I've been there. I I urge you to repent, to, to turn and say to the Lord, Lord, I am yours, but I have sinned. I have put people ahead of you. Please forgive me. Help me start afresh. Christian, if you love yourself first and God and people second, then can I tell you that you are, uh, and, and you would see this in your time, your relationships and your resources. If that's the case, you are selfish right now and you are self-serving and you are living like an idolater, but that's not your identity in Christ. I've been there and I urge you to turn to repentance today and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been making a mess of this thing. I'm turning to you. Please forgive me. Restore our relationship and let's move forward. My identity in Christ hasn't changed. I want to walk in forgiveness. If you will help me, Lord, I'm going to be different. If you love God and neighbor, but you hate yourself, then you are calling God a liar and a fool for counting you worthy to send his son Jesus and let him die for relationship with you. I've spent a lot of my life there. Friend, let me beg you in the name of Jesus to repent of that attitude and begin to think of yourself as God does and begin to love God, neighbor, self, and that order as best you can if you're living in a way that places God first, neighbor second, self third, while loving yourself like God does, then you're on the way. (laughs) When we get that down, we're on the way. We're living by grace, allowing God to love through you. You're living the good life, an adventurous life. One of my favorite activist, theologian, preacher, teacher, authors is a guy named John M. Perkins. And John M. Perkins said this, and I'll close. Our natural preference is to stay home, to get comfortable in our own spirituality. God calls each of us on a journey, an Abrahamic journey. 
It doesn't necessarily mean a geographical journey, but will always mean a spiritual journey of the heart. It will mean leaving the familiar, traveling in discomfort, but being pushed to place our trust in God for everything. And I would say, even in how we will love God, neighbor, and self. Let's pray we will leave what's comfortable and begin to live an intentional adventure together, answering the question, who is my neighbor? Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for the truth of your word. Thank you for the truth of Jesus's life. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel that we have been freely loved. It's free to us, cost Jesus everything, can be received by grace through faith. Uh, for those who've done it, God, our identity is squared away as a member of the family of God. Help us begin to live like that. For those who haven't, I pray they would trust Christ. I pray that they would see that you're not asking them to do something crazy, just asking them to turn and surrender and trust and become part of your family. God, I thank you that you love all people. I thank you that you're for all people. I thank you that your love calls us right where we are, but loves us too much to leave us there. God, help us to become those loyal, authentic people as we continue to become the church, your people, and specifically Christ Church Charlestown. We love you. Holy Spirit, help us live in response to this message this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, thanks for being here.